Hello, and thank you for joining us in this five-part series on the subject of grit, perseverance, and the middle school student. I'm Scott Betosh, and I'm the head of school at Alexandria Country Day School, an independent school in Alexandria, Virginia, that serves about 200 students in grades kindergarten through eighth grade. I'm Ryan Woods, the head of the middle school. And I'm Chris Ross, the uh, director of student life uh, and uh, seventh and eighth grade science teacher. I'm Meg Mosier, head advisor and seventh and eighth grade language arts teacher. In our first two episodes, we discussed how intentionally and separately assessing specific learning traits with students provides focus, language, and structure to our efforts to build grit and perseverance. And we shared how we help students exercise these skills by providing an assessment framework that allows students to redo assignments and retake assessments. Today, we want to get even more specific and talk about instructional practices that we employ here at Alexandria Country Day School that we have found to be particularly effective at strengthening the traits of grit and perseverance in our students. So to get us started, Ryan, I'm hoping uh, you can take the lead by talking a bit about how we've tried to move from theory to practice in what we do on a daily basis. Yeah, and uh, I would start by saying I think that uh, there's a reason we really wanted to talk about instructional practices today. Um, I, I think oftentimes as teachers or just adults, adults in general, we fall into this trap of preaching to kids. We feel like that is the way that we're going to teach them. We'll just tell them over and over. We'll just pay attention to our language. That is a key piece of this. There's no doubt. We have to be very specific with our language and make sure it is communicating what we want it to communicate. But we also have to know that students are watching our every move. They're paying attention. They're observing all the time. And when they see a disconnect between our language and our actions, they make note of it right away. Right. And oftentimes what they'll pay attention to is the actions, not the words. That's what speaks louder for them. So uh, we want to make sure that in our classrooms our actions are speaking to this idea of grit and perseverance and cultivating those two very important traits. So I want to give you a couple examples. Um, so I know that all teachers, whether they're at this school or any school, they're often saying to kids, I really want you to learn from your mistakes. You know, you got to pay attention to why you made that mistake and learn from it. But the practice that sometimes negates that is that teachers will only give feedback to students at the end of a summative assessment. So they won't give any feedback throughout the learning process to say, hey, I want you to look at that again. Maybe you made a mistake. Let's learn from it. They'll just wait until the student turns in the project that's going to be graded, or they'll wait until the test has been completed, and then they'll say, you've made a mistake. And then they say, well, we're done. We're moving on to the next unit. So how can a kid actually learn from their mistakes if they're not given an opportunity? Um, another example would be, um, we often, all of us say to kids, we really want you to wrestle and struggle with this work. We're not going to give you an easy out. You need to wrestle. Um, we need to see that grit. Um, but then, sometimes we get caught up in the race of a class. So uh, a math teacher, for example, will say, I want you to wrestle with this work. Uh, however, today I need to get through these 15 problems so that you can do the homework I've planned for you. So we're only going to spend two minutes on these problems. So if you didn't get it after two minutes, I'm just going to give you the answer. Again, kids pick up on that, and they're probably going to stop doing the work and just wait the two minutes out and get <laughs> right. the answer. Um, so this is really key for us. We want to make sure that we're not just speaking um, grit and perseverance to our students. We want to make sure that all of our practices really reinforce it. Great. Um, Chris or, or Meg, can you maybe take that a step further and talk about um, some specific examples of how we've turned uh, some of that thinking into actual practice, maybe through assignments or, or practices and instruction? Sure. I think directly connecting to something Ryan just shared about how um, oftentimes we'll, we'll tell kids what to do. Mm -hmm. 
um, but needing to have that, that action to back it up with them. Just relating to that, I think one thing that we do really well here is, as teachers, modeling grit for students in the classroom so that they get to see us engaging and, and struggling and, and persevering ourselves. Um, one thing that I can think of in the language arts classroom is writing in front of students, what we might call a write aloud. So rather than just teaching them a technique by telling it to them, or maybe even showing them a couple examples of high quality mentor texts that authors have used that technique but it's already a finished product, we're in real time right up in front of the class doing it ourselves, applying that technique to our own writing. And sometimes it takes a while. Mm -hmm. I've had to have conversations with my students who maybe start to tune out, zone out a little bit during that part, and I'll stop and say, oh, no, 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 this, this is it. This is the moment. I'm taking the lid off of my brain, and I'm showing you what's actually happening inside someone's mind when they're creating writing. This is where you should be totally tuned in, and they'll, they, they, over time they realize it is. This is where they realize... This is even hard for Miss Mo. Right. You know, I'm. It, it take. I had to. You know, try something. I deleted it. I, I tried to reword something. I went back and realized I could strengthen that word choice there. And they start to see whatever that technique is being applied in real time. But that I'm also struggling with it. It's not just some magical thing that I know how to do that they don't know how to do yet. So I think that's one thing that we're doing that takes it and puts it into practice for them for sure. I think that idea of uh, kids seeing adults struggle with the things that they're being asked to do is incredibly powerful because it does it builds that relationship and makes it real for them, right? There's definitely a, a, a one of the particular aspects from science is the science fair. I've, I've been working here for a little bit of a little bit of time now, um, and when I first started, uh, one of the charges I was given was to start a science fair, and so. I did, and it, the way it the way it really uh, worked out then was much more of a uh, start the task and then give assignments for the kids to do at home. And I doubled up by you know continuing with the regular curriculum during the uh, during that same time. So they were learning stuff in the classroom that was unrelated to the science fair topics because each of them was doing their own thing. And there was a lot of work going on. And by during and by the end of the science fair process. Um, yeah, the kids learned some things, and, and, and they had uh, some nice products to show. Uh, and I also had a, a, a quite a few parents with pitchforks and, and uh, <laughs> uh, lots of uh, negative comments about the entire process that they had to go through. Because so um, much was happening at home. Absolutely. Right? Most of it was, ha a lot of it was happening and, at home. And not on their shoulders. <laughs> on their shoulders. And then, you know, you have a lot of parent involvement with it, too. And then it really starts to move away from authentic student work. So that thankfully has progressed um, into a much uh, more robust uh, activity where we start the science fair uh, in early November and that's all we do. And we don't do any other curricular work or anything. It's all about the science fair for the next nearly three months. Um, and I work with each and every one of the kids separately. Uh, they struggle through the work that they're doing. They come up with their own topics. Um, and I think that, you know, so we have roughly 60 students and each one of them is doing a different science fair experiment. Um, and they have to come up with it and think about it. And the reality or the outcome of all of that is they are really invested in what they're doing because I didn't come up with it. They didn't look it up and cut up for some, you know, for some cookie cutter science fair experiment off the internet. They made it their own, and they're really interested in trying to figure out what the results are going to be. And so there's buy-in right from the beginning, and then it's a, it is a ton of work. Mm -hmm. But they do it because they're really curious about what's going on.
And by bringing it into the classroom and making it part of the <clears throat> curriculum, you're also able then to emphasize process more than just the product, right? Absolutely. And, and the reality of it is, too, at the end, um, their, their grade is, or their feedback is really driven by the process. Um, and if, if they've done the process and, and everything is in place, they, they have, their results just follow. It, it, a good grade follows, the good feedback follows. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's every, every day, if not at least uh, a, a couple few times a week, they're getting some concrete feedback on what they're doing, not only from me, but from the experiment that they're conducting mm -hmm. as well. So it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of um, positive and arguably negative feedback, too, and how to change what's going to go on. Um, the uh, eighth grade, uh, the eighth graders in their science fair project do a, uh, an egg car uh, competition and uh, um, every time they try their car they're getting feedback as to whether or not the car works at all, whether or not the egg is protected, so on and so forth. So it's, it's, um, it's definitely a huge process driven and um, a process and, and they really uh, learn a lot from all of that. You mentioned something about giving the students choice over the topics that they um up with and how that leads to a level of investment. Talk a little bit more about um, other places where we provide opportunities for student choice because I know that's been a very intentional effort on our part to find ways to allow students to choose their pathway through their learning in order to build that investment. Yeah, I think that um, student choice is essential. Uh, to developing that grit and that perseverance that we often find that kids are willing to push themselves beyond d doing enough and just doing good enough when they're allowed to have a voice and have some choice in that format that it's going to take, the process they're going to follow, or the content that they're going to create. I know in the language arts classroom, every writing, every piece of writing they do, they choose the topic. They're never told what to write about. They're taught how to write a particular genre. And then within that genre, they choose what they want to write about, what they care about or feel passionately about. In eighth grade, we have an editorial unit where students are taught how to craft persuasive argument text and try to influence an audience, but they pick issues that are relevant in a community that they're a part of that they want to influence change on. And it's one of the more motivated units for them as writers because they, they know that these are going to ultimately be seen by members of their community and may actually affect change that they believe in. Kids are also um, allowed to choose, sometimes, the format of an assessment. I just did a vocabulary assessment with 8th grade before spring break in which each kid had five words of their own choosing. So there's, there's more choice. I wasn't even meaning to talk about, but they choose their own words from the reading that they're doing, from conversations they're having in life. Maybe it's a word that Chris used in science class that they didn't quite understand, and they've chosen to study that word and learn that word. So they each have their own five words, but then I let them choose how to demonstrate their mastery of understanding not only what the words mean, but how to authentically use them in context. Everybody had the same rubric. They knew how I was going to, what I was looking for, what I was going to evaluate, but they made their own choices about how to demonstrate that. One student filmed a newscast and she was played. She played four different reporters. She edited it together, and she wove those words into her newscast. I had students make flip books. Um, I had podcasts that were recorded. So there was a lot of variety in there, and certainly going above and beyond of, of maybe what would have been done if I just told them write a piece mm -hmm. that uses your words. In, in the Earth Science Unit that we do in science, uh, well, obviously in science for the eighth graders, um, is they uh, learn about different ways uh, that the earth is formed, uh, the mountains, volcanoes, and, and earthquakes, and 
uh, all of those aspects, and we need to figure out an assessment of some in some way, shape, or form toward the end to see that they've learned some things. And by giving them a, a variety of ways that they can demonstrate that has helped tremendously. Uh, for example, one of my students has is very savvy technologically uh, and loves to create um, some you know, short movies and things like that. So he's done uh, quite a few claymation uh, videos on explaining how uh, mountains and volcanoes work, and he's incorporated uh, actual video footage from the internet and other types of facts, but then brought it down to a, um, a story that he tells through his claymation that uh, um, uh, that really gives it a level of humor, um, but also content. The content is there, and then everybody just wants to watch it a second time or a third time. <laughs> and uh, I, you don't often see that when it comes to something as dry as how mountains form or things like that. So, <clears throat> Brian, can you, we've talked a bit about science, talked about language arts. What about some of the other subjects uh, that our teachers are engaged in? How, how have some of these ideas of choice, authentic assessment, uh, modeling played into how we emphasize uh, perseverance in those subjects? Sure. I can think of a, a math example off the top of my head right now. Um, I think in, in math, we're paying a lot of attention to process. Um, so when a teacher is working with students through a problem set, I think in, in some math classrooms and maybe in other settings, teachers will say, all right, students go do these five problems, then we're going to check back in in five minutes, and I want to see that you have the correct answer. And they literally just review the answer to confirm that everyone has that. Um, in, in our math classroom, certainly we'll send students off to work in pairs to work through some problems. The teacher's circula circulating around the room. And she'll come up to a group and see that they're either on the right track or the wrong track. Um, and she will pause the entire class and project their work up uh, on the board and have them talk through the process they're using to solve the problem. Really emphasizing for everyone in the room, it's not just about getting the, the right or wrong answer. It's the process you're using. How are you wrestling with it? How are you making sense of it? That's what we really value in this room. Um, and then even after one group has shown their way, she'll go to another group who has a different way of doing this, or who is going down a different track right now. It doesn't matter whether it's right or wrong. I want to see the way you're thinking. And she'll have that group explain the way that they're thinking. Um, so that's one way that we're really valuing the process and letting students know it's okay to be wrestling with this. It's okay to, if you're going down a different road and if your road leads you to the wrong answer, as long as you find a way to get back to the right one, that's fine. That's what learning's all about. Um, I can think about in Spanish class as well. Um, there's time set aside nearly every class period where students are creating Quizlet flashcards, online flashcards, or they're reviewing them. The teacher really wants to send this message to the students that like, this is an important part of learning in our classroom, this process of sitting down, taking the time to review your vocabulary. That is a, a necessary evil, if you will, of learning a new language. And so it's so important I'm going to give you time to do it in here. It's not like something you just have to do on your own. This is important, so we're going to do it. Um, I was also just thinking uh, about, I know Meg's talked a lot about language arts, but I want to bring up another example uh, related to instructional practices that really promote this idea of grit and perseverance. Um, it, you know, the workshop model is what we use here. And so we'll do a quick five-minute mini-lesson where we're teaching a very nuanced and specific point. Um, and then we'll say to students, I want you to oftentimes go in a pair and try it. Or sometimes we'll say, go try it on your own. And we'll give them five minutes to try it on their own. And then again, we'll We'll work with them, see how they're working through that process, and we'll often pause them and in front of the entire class say, like, where are you in this process right now? What have you learned? What are you struggling with? Let's talk about that right now. Um, and then once we do some talking and have some discussions, all right, go back to work now that you've learned a little bit more. And then they try it again. Um, so we're always paying attention to that process and talking about the process, not just worrying about the final product. 
Well, that speaks a bit to this idea of reflection, too, which I know is a big part of our instructional practice here, allowing time and building time in for students to reflect on their own work. Can somebody talk a little bit about, you know, an example of that or, or where we've uh, emphasized that in our, in our practice? Sure, yeah, I mean, I, um, in the, um, I, I go back to the science fair uh, efforts for both the 7th and 8th graders, and one of the things that, um, there's really two things I want to touch on with this is that regular reflection, but then also the uh, authenticity of the, the outcome of that work. Um, they, the students who have done science fairs uh, in the past, and, and this year was, was a perfectly, uh, it was an equally good example, um, they know that they're going to be performing, if you will, in front of an audience in some way, shape, or form. Seventh graders have a traditional science fair judging routine that they go through, and then parents come in the evening to see what all of the different work that all of the different students have done. And the eighth graders have a presentation in front of a panel of, of, of their teachers, sort of uh, akin to your PhD thesis dissertation uh, defense. Um, and so they, they, they know that this is coming, and they want to do really well with it, and so they practice. And so even before, uh, even before they get to that point, uh, I have the, the, the students pair off, and they're going to practice their presentations in front of each other and give them time to reflect and give feedback to each other on what those presentations are and to figure out little things like, you know, you really said um a lot there and how can you, you know, you might want to be aware of that or you didn't really use your poster board terribly well. And so there's a lot of things that they can reflect on before they get to that process because it is such a high stakes in their mind kind of a thing and it really motivates them to do well. Um, and it's just exciting to see because they were they were really working hard, and then when they got to that point where they're presenting in front of the in front of the different people that they're uh, you know working for here, um, it was it was quite incredible with some very eloquent and articulate uh, kids talking about their their projects overall and the process that they followed, um, and it really made a big difference to have that time to really struggle through that to process through it to reflect on it and to practice it some more. Um, I think. The reflection ties into something Ryan said earlier in the podcast about not rushing to get the lesson done, but allowing there to be enough time to think. And when kids have that space, when people have that space to reflect and to, to think back on the process, if they can see that direct link between the effort that they put in, the process that they used, and the outcome then they're more willing to struggle. I find that kids are, are willing to engage in the struggle if they feel that they have the tools. Mm -hmm. and, and so much of middle school, and maybe just all school, is teaching kids how to think. But there needs to be space for them to reflect on what do they do when they think. To, to just for example, today in language arts, my seventh graders are starting to practice and get ready for their spe speeches and suites, their major speaking unit of the year. And so normally, I start off by asking them to kind of brain dump on a piece of paper everything they already know about strong public speaking. And then we look at what they've got and you know watch the mentor videos of great speakers and add to that list. Today I tried something a little bit different. I used one of the thinking routines that I, that I learned from Project Zero this summer. And it was, it was more directed for them to think in particular ways. They had to document three questions three ideas that they had or thoughts that they had about public speaking, and they had to come up with an analogy for public speaking. And then we watched some videos, and then they did it again. They had, they had to come up with some questions, 
they had to come up with some ideas and thoughts that they had, and they had to come up with another analogy, and then they had to look at the connection between what they thought at first and what they thought after. They watched these mentor performances. And at the end of class, I looked at the time, I saw we had about seven minutes left in the period. And I had something else on the agenda for the day that I, I could have gone on to and tried to get it in. I wouldn't have finished it. We could have started it, get it going. But in the moment, I said, I just decided to stop and to stay with this a little bit. And I, and I asked them to just pause and be silent and think about what was their experience like using this thinking routine? And how was it different than if I had done what I usually did? And I described that to them. And then we just had a conversation as a class. And they talked about how one kid said, usually when we do it that, that other way and we just all kind of say things we know, he said it almost feels like a, a competition. And people say, oh, they took my idea and I wanted to say that one and I didn't know what else to say. And he's like, this was just, it was more thoughtful. And because there were, I was told to come up with ideas and questions and analogies, I had to really think about which category I was going to put it in. And then the analogy was very challenging. Some kids talked about how that made them think of it in a totally different way, having to compare it to something else. And just that seven minutes at the end of class of reflecting on the way we thought about what we thought about in class that day and what was that like for you. I think that that's part of it, teaching, making, helping them, giving them that time and that space to become self-aware about what worked for them and what didn't work for them. Maybe maybe that didn't work for some kid, and that would have given them an opportunity to say, I didn't like thinking about it this way. Mm. But building in time like that to reflect on how we're thinking. I think another just example of reflection, um, I think I mentioned in a previous podcast that we have our students reflecting at the end of every summative assessment. We also have them reflecting at the end of formative assessments. Um, so, for example, a math unit on um, percents. So three-fourths of the way through the unit, the teacher will say, okay, tomorrow we're going to have a formative assessment on percents. So the students come in, and it's a regular testing environment. They're handed their paper. They do the problems to the best of their ability. The teacher collects them just like a normal test. And then the teacher uh, provides feedback the next day, gives, them, gives it back to them, gives them the feedback about the problems. They talk through some of them. And all, every student in the room is required um, to answer two questions. The first one is, how did you do on this assessment, what were your areas of strengths and what were your real areas of challenge? They have to identify, well, these single-step problems did great, multi-step problems, that's where I really struggle and I need more work. The next reflection question is, what are you going to do between now and our summative assessment, the graded piece, um, that's going to make you better in this particular area? So they'll write things like, I need to spend more time on IXL practicing these types of problems. I need to schedule time to meet with Teacher X during my study hall. Um, whatever it may be. So the students are really reflecting on where they are in that learning process and figuring out how am I going to be gritty here to make mm -hmm. sure that I really master these concepts. It's interesting to think about the context around all of these examples you've given <clears throat> is that there's a strong relationship between teachers and students and a, and a sense of safety and uh, opportunity to um, be comfortable with, with thinking about one's own challenges mm -hmm. and not necessarily feel that you have to perform perfectly all the time for a grade that built into this is a sense of um, uh, relationship that's built not only among students but also between students and teachers to be able to, to have those kind of reflective conversations which can be very revealing to say I was surprised by the outcome of this or I didn't know how to do this or I don't know how to do this and I'm struggling with it to, to value struggle in the culture of the school not just in, in specific strategies that we use but it's embedded into the culture 
that leads us to um, what will be our next episode, uh, where we're going to talk a bit more about some ways in which we've fostered that culture and built it into our program, that idea of trust and relationship and conversation and dialogue about uh, these very issues. So next week, or next episode, rather, we'll talk about uh, uh, a program we use uh, called uh, CPR, Circle of Power and Respect, and also midweek meetings and how we build these social-emotional skills into our, into our program on a, on a regular basis. So I encourage you to uh, listen to our next episode. If you haven't yet, uh, listen to our earlier two episodes, which are available either on the Alexandria Country Day School website, that's acdsnet.org, or on iTunes, where you can find these podcasts as well. Perhaps you can even give us a review and get us discovered. So um, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Look forward to our next episode uh, from Alexandria Country Day School.